Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Today, I'm joined by Chris West, who is the co-founder of Context Capital Consulting. Many of you would probably know him from his previous role at WA Super. Chris, welcome. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me and and, uh, thanks to the listeners for joining today. So let's maybe kick off with your transition. Um, Most of you have known you previously at, at WA Super. Um, and now you've moved on and um, there's obviously been a lot of changes in the superannuation industry, a lot of amalgamations, and now you've transitioned to running a consulting firm. Can you give a bit of context on on that transition? Uh, thanks, Alex. Um, I, I think the first and uh, most important thing is you know, 2020 was obviously uh, a pretty significant year in many ways for many people uh, for obvious reasons, um, but, but for me, it did close a chapter um, with, with a little bit of sadness. Um, I really enjoyed uh, my time uh, at WA Super from sort of 2013 uh, to till 2020, but it was something that, that meant a lot to me personally. That when we were seeking to merge uh, with a with a larger asset owner partner, that we that we chose the right partner, and and, and we were very happy that we chose Aware Super and sort of handed over stewardship of our to WA Super members capital to them as, as for us, we felt it was a very strong cultural fit. Um, importantly, their, their integrity and ethics and approach to caring about the member uh, was very important to us. And, and we successfully delivered that merger last year and it gave both myself and uh, a couple of key members of our WA Super investment team uh, the chance to reflect on what's important to us and, and what do we want to do next? There are a few different opportunities out there and I'm very lucky to have them. But for us, what we wanted to do is do something meaningful. And so we thought about uh, starting our own consulting firm that would be able to, in a way, democratise access to the things we take for granted in institutional land. Like, so we, we have you know, large-scale access to lots of bright intellectual capital, lots of good intellectual property, we lots of good ideas that we can't always use, but many that are just there and we take them for granted that we're able to use them, we're able to take them for granted we're able to use those tools. And we felt that there was a real opportunity to take what we have learned and what we could see and know from the institutional portfolio construction community and really bring that to a larger, larger audience or user base uh, in terms of the what we call the wholesale and mid-market. So we're really excited to start it, but that's that's really the genesis of that transition. I'm curious to learn, you know, how do you look back, obviously now outside of WA Super, around how you went about portfolio construction, how you looked at governance and how it's different in that institutional framework versus now building uh, portfolios for really a whole range of clients from endowments to potentially consulting to institutions to also now that wholesale market? I think maybe talk about what's similar and then we can talk about talk about what's different. I, I think I think the thing that sort of runs through how we approach portfolio construction is is asking the right question. So what's really important is to define your mission and your objectives. What what's the actual problem you're solving for? And that that was something we prided ourselves on at WA Super, which is a really clear 
philosophy and a clear emphasis on what was important to that membership base. But obviously you have a number of constraints that you need to work with when you're, when you're in an institution, uh, whether that's around you know, peer relativity, becomes something that people uh, listening to this would have, would have heard many, many times. It's around those fee constraints. It's around um, th things like career risk, like not necessarily individually, but organisationally. Like you, you always encounter the, you know, whether it's the three-year track record case with, with managers and, and things like this, just going outside of the box becomes quite difficult. Um, so what I, what I, I guess one of the reflections I have is that there's an opportunity um, to be bolder than I think the superannuation industry forces you to be. There's an opportunity to really you know, take, take bigger steps and, and try things that are more innovative when they are in the end client's interest to take that innovation risk. Um, so we're really lucky that you know we're off to a good start at, at Context Capital, where we, we have clients in the financial advice space, small boutique, sort of institutional space, and, and family offices, and they provide unique challenges and also, more importantly for us, unique opportunities uh, to really add value. So it's it, it's kind of a really interesting time for us to be building the business and in, in such a challenging market environment going forward. Um, and learning about you know what these the, the needs are of different types of investors to really to really serve their portfolio as well. How much do you think being bold is in being important in being bold today when you've got such low interest rates and expected returns are so much lower? You know, how willing are you to totally throw out the traditional model of portfolio construction and the SAA and really rethink that whole you know process? Yeah, I think I think we're lucky that we are working with a diverse range of clients, and I think the ones that we are going to be the most successful for are the ones who are prepared to go with us on that journey of being bold. Right? And so, if you're looking at you know, you compare a highly regulated uh, superannuation fund that the governance requirements there, because the governance we believe is very important, but the, the governance requirements, the compliance requirements, the, you know, the peer relativity, the, you know, the, the broader sort of uh, interaction with your membership base, all these sorts of things, versus being able of the complete other end of the spectrum working with the family office. Because the family office effectively, the constraints can only, are only defined by the key stakeholders of that family. So they can really, um, invest in the most innovative ideas they can they can be bolder they can really target the exact risks they want to have um, without being forced into any sort of set of uh, peer constraints so that's that's some of the stuff we find really exciting is working with those right partners you know those clients who've, who've backed us to really build more interesting more innovative um, we think better portfolios for the future um, because they're, they're prepared to to go with us on being a little bit bolder in portfolio construction. How much do you think that you need to constantly evolve the portfolio construction as you think about the actual market and the environment that we're in today? I think that's a good question, Christian Alex, because you sort of mentioned it there before, but to us, the biggest challenge with portfolio construction is the impairment and defectiveness of the 
fixed income asset class. There, there are so many problems with um, you know, non-price sensitive determination of price, right? Effectively, you know, call it quantitative easing, everything else, anything you like, but ultimately to us, it's the non-price sensitive determination of price. And the role that it can play in the portfolio uh, is, is therefore so significantly impaired. But in combination with that, you've got risk premium being depressed across a number of, uh, number of asset classes. So you've got this sort of low expected return world because of the, the bid up in all, in all sort of asset classes. Now we sort of, we approach it sort of slightly differently than sort of the dynamism that you've sort of suggested there. We think, we think what it's really important is before you work on the solution for the portfolio, it's to actually work on what you define risk as in your portfolio. And this is really interesting for us working with different types of clients because to, to work out how you sort of yeah, repair in many ways a portfolio that used to potentially rely more on fixed income traditionally, which is particularly the case in our financial advisor clients where they're sort of looking after re retail portfolios, um, you know, very, a lot closer to a traditional sort of 730 or 60-40 type portfolio. Very prevalent there. So if you're looking to replace it, you first need to understand you know, what, what role it was there for, but also in, in a, even a step back from that, what does risk actually mean, which sounds like an almost sort of esoteric concept, but talking to different financial advice practices, um, you need to sort of be conscious, not just of you know, the quantitative pace, but you also need to be conscious of the behavioural pace. Right? So the, one of the key issues you need in, in, to manage investor behaviour is making sure people stick to their strategy. And so how, and, and say, an advice practice works with their clients, it's, we have three different advice practice clients and each of them can sort of work with us and say, we actually define risk differently. So what we found through our process is saying, well, this, this advice practice defines risk as not losing capital. This advice practice defines risk as being closer to, to sort of a peer set. And, this, and the third advice practice, it's actually about how quickly does my money recover? And so because, and each of them define it differently, the solution needs to be different. And there's a reason for it. And the reason isn't necessarily um, always just about sort of quantitative sort of investment type issues. It's understanding who you're managing the capital for. And so for an advice, advice sort of client uh, portfolio, what really matters then is understanding the second order of the behavioural impacts it's going to have in their advice process. Uh, and, and therefore, you need to make a portfolio that's going to behave in a way that's going to help uh, those clients um, feel safe and secure on your investment journey. So once you've sort of defined that invest risk is sort of different for those three, I'm um, just sort of mentioning sort of on the family office side, they can define risk completely differently as well. Because you've got to remember, if you if you've got sort of a, a couple of hundred million dollars of endowment style portfolio, risk is is multi generational. Right? Risk isn't about an individual year's outcome. Risk isn't about peer risk. It's about the real value of that capital in the very, very long term and being insulated against uh, things that can hurt the major parts of your portfolio. So each of these different scenarios, going away and trying to rebuild portfolios, you need to build different solutions. So it's not necessarily the case that it's just looking at 
building different solutions at a different point in time. For us, it's about more sort of a horizontal way of looking at it and saying, depending on what risk is the most important to you at, and, and given your stakeholders, what's the solution we need to put in place and what are the things we need to do to sort of tinker to tinker with the portfolio. So give you sort of an example there. So if you're if you're really caring about uh, sort of drawdown risk and you've got a your financial advice business and that client base is very, very uh, sort of tilted towards pre-retiree or retiree clients, Having solutions that help mitigate drawdown risk, we think are really important. And we think there needs to be an improvement in the availability of those from a retail perspective. And this is kind of goes to that point at the start, oh, it's around democratising access to what institutions take for granted. Um, because we sort of see, see what you can, what large, so something large, you know, asset owners, very sophisticated asset owners can do. And you go, well, what can be done in there can, could be packaged up as a solution for, for a retail or wholesale client um, and add a lot to those portfolios. So, so we think the industry as a whole, in terms of the funds management community, can, can add a lot of value by taking a lot of the intellectual thought that's there and, and packaging it up in, in the right digestible way. And so if you're, but if you're that sort of client because about drawdown, having something that is focused on allocating sort of some sort of premium to, to help manage downside risk, whether it's derivatives or, or some other solution that's sort of fit for purpose for that client where risk is how long does it take for me to get back to where i was because that's the psyche of, of that investor base or that advice process um then the solution is going to be different it's more about making sure you you know you manage risk through having say cash um available to deploy into 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 market dips or, or drawdowns um for that family office type in portfolio that's thinking on a, a multi-hundred-year horizon uh, from intergenerational endowment, um, it's more about thinking, well, risk is probably uh, disruption and inflation, and so I, I, I need to manage the risk to my sort of large-cap equities and, and real estate, you know, direct real estate portfolio that, that type of uh, client will normally have. Uh, I need to manage that risk with venture capital as, as a risk mitigator, not a... Um, return generator because it helps insulate the largest part of your portfolio, but then also making sure you've got inflation hedges. Um, and those inflation hedges can be relatively simple, but you, we think you shouldn't, and this goes to that old point, you should be prepared to think outside the box and go further. Um, and whether that's be, you know, beyond beyond precious metal allocations and, and people need to start thinking about if you're that type of client, in some circumstances, is the risk that the world goes to a different form of exchange, right? We, you know, a lot of in this usual space, we sort of almost can laugh at things like, like cryptocurrency, but the risk for a certain type of client is that your wealth in the financial world is no longer worth anything because we denominate everything in a different currency. Like that's 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 a non-zero probability. Um, and it's thinking about making sure there's lots of small allocations in, in portfolios that help uh, have you know with a highly asymmetric payoff in that in the scenario where they way play out that you've got things insulated right but it's, this comes back to that that comment around understanding what risk is to the investor both in terms of the time horizon that it'll play out the nature of it um and then actually designing what the right portfolio solution is which can be you know, 
I've just sort of mentioned a whole bunch of different things that are suitable for different investors. But that's that's kind of the stuff that we're working on today and we think it's quite, quite interesting. One of the things that comes to mind when you talk about risk and, and building portfolios is we have this SAA with these very nicely set asset classes of putting a little bit of money into equity, some into fixed income, some into real estate, some into infrastructure and maybe some gold. What we've seen of late is that whenever there seems to be some sort of a market drawdown, a risk-off style event, the correlation between all these assets is just converging very quickly. Uh, and maybe that's also to do, it, to do with the fact that bond yields are so low and, and don't offer that defensive characteristic. Do we need to rethink the way we construct portfolios ultimately and move away from these traditional asset classes to maybe looking more specifically at different strategies? like a momentum strategy, a strategy that's a, um, you know, based on the CAPE ratio on, on one side. One is a long vol strategy and then some real estate and some gold, for example. Do we really need to totally rethink the way we construct a portfolio? Yeah, so maybe I'll um, answer that by saying how we actually do our portfolio modelling. Right, so so we, we do believe uh, in total portfolio approaches and that means very, very different things to very to a number of different people. For, for us, if you think about the simple outworking of it, the simple outworking is you model at the strategy level, not the asset class level. And we don't actually think to change your thinking, you need to complicate it more than that. Right? In that if I, if I modestly change, if I change the composition of my equities allocation by having a different style-wise, why is our assumption that that does, doesn't change the weighting to that asset class? We kind of think about it in the wrong ways in, in our view. So often we sort of think about things as um, my default assumption is I've got the SAA piece, um, but we really think it's important that the SAA or referenced portfolio, that, that sort of portfolio should almost be an outworking of the exposures in many instances rather than just the be all, be all and end all. Because the way you construct one component of your portfolio surely impacts the others. And we think that relationship needs to be clearly understood. Um, sure, we think SA is a very, very good tool. Um, we think reference portfolios, um, just traditional you know, uh, listed equities uh, and fixed income reference portfolios are very, very good tools because you, you can't beat that over the long term because there's no reason for you to have done anything in your process. But we think in terms of how you sort of build up portfolio construction, actually going and modelling things and understanding the relationships across different asset classes but at the individual strategy level becomes, becomes really important. And we actually think for most investors, particularly our sort of mindset, moving to that level of thinking is, is already adding such a significant amount of value. You don't need to sort of refine it a lot further than that. You've kind of got 80% of the value just from changing the mindset and understanding that what I have in my equity portfolio impacts what I have in my fixed income portfolio. It is a big change for people because it's been many years where people have based their portfolio construction on the Markowitz portfolio and there's this mean variance efficient portfolio. Unfortunately, risk doesn't work that way. We don't have these normal uh, distributions for risk and standard deviation can, can be very volatile in itself. It's not a stable relationship. So how do you then actually then work on the education of your clients to understand this? 
Yeah, I think that's that's an excellent question, Alex, but, and, and, and emphasising that importance of the educational piece. Um, but equally important to the educational piece is actually the listening piece, which is you need, before you start sort of espousing some sort of theory or theory of change, you actually need to understand how your clients think um, and what's important to them, which is why we uh, you know, run onboarding processes that really are focused on us listening, not, not, not sort of telling. Um, but when you mentioned this distribution point, I think how we start that discussion is something that many of us in institutional land uh, would be very familiar with, which is there's one issue with interest rates starting at zero and people go, oh, that's sort of, you know, your low return. But the thing that becomes a little less understood um, is that it goes, you not only have moved the mean or median of your distribution left towards zero, you significantly increase what's below zero in your distribution, normal or otherwise. Like you have, by my shifting the distribution left with lower returns, you have this higher probability and higher significance of, of negative returns. And once we sort of uh, illustrate that, that's really when people start to get on board and go, okay, I get it. We need to do something that's a little bit different because what's there isn't necessarily what, what our clients or our stakeholders are, are looking for. And so it really starts you know, prompting people to think, well, it's my fiduciary responsibility, um, whether they're fiduciaries or not, it's my it is my responsibility uh, to try and do something different. And so it is it is about then trying to go, well, what sort of things, and we sort of encourage thinking around what sort of things can move this distribution, I guess, a little bit further to the right, which which means trying to find anything that's positively skewed. <laughs> because because so many things um, you know, that, that have been sort of pushed into portfolios as replacements in the last few years of you know, things like credit, um, which obviously have, ne have a negative skew because you're, you're captive here. You yield and then it can go down from there. It's really about trying to find positively skewed things to to balance that sort of potential range of outcomes out. So you're technically then looking for VC or maybe some really small cap companies in biotech or or technology that can give that five or ten x type return. That yeah, we think anything in that space having a number of you know this is clearly going to be different for different investors, right? So it, and it comes down to your beliefs, um, your philosophy, you know, how simple and complex. And it's clearly very different for, for an advised client portfolio where you've got to, where we, we have financial advisors build, you know, build typical mum and dad portfolios for people saving for their retirement. That is, that is a different proposition in terms of an endowment style. Like when, as you move into that endowment style, there's a lot, you, know, you can be a lot bolder. Uh, and you've got this privilege and competitive strength of being able to do more and more of those type of things. And for the unconstrained investor, uh, we very much, as you sort of articulated, some of those type of things are exactly the types of things we think are really important for those portfolios, particularly with those with very, very long horizons. We think it's essential um, to be having those positively skewed assets like they say, micro, anything like that. What's your thought then on, on creating almost like a barbell style portfolio where you do have the VC that provides that really high right tail and then you've got your just run-of-the-mill style maybe some credit and and 
low risk fixed income and then maybe some hedging on the bottom end to try and offset the potential VC, um, you know, unfortunate performance, for example. Yeah, it really depends on the the investor. Right. So, so we, when you say barbell, that that certainly is a, is a good description. Like increasing growth assets and targeting small numbers, uh, small allocations to a large number of highly asymmetric allocations, combined with increasing the tail protection, we think is a good way for, for certain types of clients to build portfolios. Uh, for a different client in the in the advised client space, it's more about trying to understand and target different things. So, so your, your pre-retiree, retiree client, those type of issues are going to be less. More, for us, it's more about building a more resiliency. Right? So, so whether, you know, you mentioned that, like, it is things like having uh, precious metals allocation, which previously we wouldn't have thought is suitable, but we think um, when the cost of carry on bonds exceeds the cost of, in, in for many countries, exceeds the cost of carry of, Precious metal, like it shouldn't, it should be compared on its merits, right? Negative seventy-five bond versus <laughs> versus a metal. It's it's kind of like it's a trade-off that it is very different than it used to be. It is about thinking about what well, do I want? You know, a, a more meaningful quality bias with a with a higher equities allocation. You know, you mentioned those credit pieces about having the right targeted credits. And in these, um, in sort of the wholesale real-time type portfolios, it's about also thinking carefully about currency exposure, um, you know, which from an institutional perspective, we're often quite quite familiar with optimising net, net foreign currency exposure. But it's about, you know, if, if people are used to using uh, in that space, say, yeah. area-specific uh, uh, sort of allocations and things like that, it's about trying to target the right type of currency exposures as well to add that resilience. With a general theme, when you say barbell, to yeah, to generally have a little more growth assets, but increase increase tail protection. It's just how we do that is likely to be very different for for a, a, a client that's financial advisor style portfolio versus a, like a family office or endowment style portfolio. But the theme is probably the same around barbell. You touched on very, very briefly at the start around sort of the interest around cryptocurrency and maybe people's concerns around the financial system. Um, and that's maybe a reason why people can use crypto as a potential hedge. How much do you think about potentially looking for more assets that are outside the financialized system? You know, more of the real assets that are out there as being a hedge for some of your clients? Well, I think these sorts of issues are very important for family office portfolios. Like understanding what are the scenarios that will reduce the true value of the endowment that you've been afforded. And we think building that resiliency is important. Obviously, there's obviously many other things that are important. Like in our in our client-based segment, there is a lot of interest in things like impact investing. Right? That's, a, that's sort of a whole whole sort of separate discussion. But it's, it's a very, yeah, that's very topical and, and people are very keen on using their their wealth to do positive things. Um, but in terms of that sort of protection piece, uh, we do think it's really important to, to, you know, critically think about what what might actually happen in these other scenarios. But there's also opportunities, right? You know, we think, uh, you know, even if in, in sort of the, yeah, the crypto segment, if people um, don't think uh, we can get in some, some sort of almost religious debate about whether people believe in it or not, it's kind of not the point. Um, to us, for the significant world portfolios, it's about thinking about what scenarios 
that might play out might re reduce the true value of wealth. But this, these sort of developments also create opportunities. So you think about if we're if we're going to be nice uh, institutional theoreticians and, and think about efficient market hypotheses, am I better spending my active risk budget in large cap equities um, to generate alpha, uh, which is very well covered, very well thought through, lots of really high quality managers competing there out, out there in the world, and and large sophisticated institutions competing, uh, you know, with really sophisticated systems and teams. Lots of people competing in, in large scale equities. Is that a really good use of my skill budget, or am I better finding, uh, you know, skilled ex currency and fixed income traders and managers and hedge fund managers focused on an asset class that isn't adopted, has high um, dispersion, high volatility? Like we, we think, the yeah, actual probably the biggest opportunity uh, if you're talking about crypto space, we actually think the biggest opportunity is, is hedge funds and market neutral type exposures because we think there's lots of skilled um, fixed income and currency style focused uh, traders and managers and hedge fund type people um, who've moved into that space who now have a much bigger fishing point to generate their alpha. Right? So we think those type of things are, that's, that's kind of an easier story. The actual holding the beta is not really something that we we advocate strongly for, we just think people should think about um, and think about what it's going to do to their wealth if something like that happens and we, we move off fair currency. Um, bigger opportunity is probably this, this alpha opportunity and that should be, the alpha there should be compared against the alpha you can get from equities. How do you then think about the break breakup of a portfolio around what's active and what's passive? Well, we, we think about skill risk as just an allocation of risk. Right. So when, when you're allocated, you've got some sort of risk risk budget and you can think about that risk budget, as we sort of talked about before, in a number of different ways. Um, we just think your allocation to skill is another type of risk you take. In, in the same way you take um, certain beaters, in the same way you take, so say, currency risk. These are all different things that are just sort of part of the pie. And we think in your allocation to skill, it's kind of two different bits. One is... What are the underlying bias elements I want for a portfolio? Like, do I want a, a, a quality bias in my equities portfolio, um, as, as an example, or do I specifically want to avoid negative yielding uh, fixed income securities, or do I, you know, do I really think that's an asset class where I want to target exposure? So there's kind of two bits. One is that exposure targeting element, and in the retail wholesale space, that is more. Um, more sort of active driven than sort of smart beta or factory driven that, that the institutional space might be used to. Um, but in the other pieces, where do I want to spend skill, that skill risk, really, you know, without getting sort of, you know, portable alpha on us here, like that should be just found where it's the best opportunity for it is. It, we, we shouldn't be saying we need to allocate different elements of skill to different asset classes. In terms of allocating a pure skill, you should buy the best skill you can get. So final question, as you're thinking about the portfolio, we haven't really talked about the role of cash. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, there's there's a lot of conjecture out there about cash being trash potentially is, is one commentary <laughs> that's been thrown out there. What's your thought about the role of having cash or something equivalent in, in portfolios? Um, we think one of the key roles of cash is optionality. 
right? When I talked about those positively, emphasizing positive skew, right, to sort of uh, help defeat the this sort of move towards the left in the distribution, particularly if your investor base or if you're, you're an advised business and your um, the behavioral evidence of your your financial advice process uh, lean you towards in needing to help investors make sure their money recovers, cash actually provides that optionality to purchase when things are down. Okay, we, we think that's the value, and that optionality is positively skewed. So I, you, know, you need to be careful and measured in how you allocate, like everything, and it can be a drag. But we think the key role, more than anything for most portfolios, is providing optionality to purchase. All right, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Chris. Yeah, thanks, Alex, and thanks to those who've listened today. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.